Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God, to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Trending. How do you find the balance between passion and desire? And what's the difference between being a nice guy and a good man? I seem to hear a lot of people talking about how, well, I'm a nice person or I'm a nice guy, almost within the context of asking a question or justifying certain behaviors. So what's behind this? Do you find yourself saying, hey, I'm a nice guy, or would you refer to yourself as a good man? I think it's an interesting conversation. Some years ago here on the show, I discussed, is it enough to be a nice guy? My argument is it's not enough to be a nice guy. And joining me in just a moment will be Bear Wozniak to give his keen insights on this topic. If you've never heard Bear before, he's actually a world champion surfer. He spent has spent over 20 years a career as a CPA and has keen insights into the perspective of manliness as a Catholic. In fact, he has a great book specifically on the topic of manliness, the 12 rules for manhood. So we'll post a link to that on social media. Also, a little later on, I was really intrigued by a story that came up in People magazine. And for many reasons, but it brings our attention to the issue of women. Women, contraception, abortion, how the world is literally brainwashing us manipulating us, pressuring us into insisting that contraception and abortion have to be part of our lifestyle. And what happens when that goes awry? What happens if we choose something else? Well, I'll explain a little later on. Also, we will continue our series on Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, looking at marriage as a sacrament, seeing two sides of it, both the mystery of the sacrament of matrimony, but also the sign of the sacrament of matrimony, that visible dimension that we understand, and those mysteries that we just quite can't quite fathom and how that leads us to be inspired and in how we interact in marriage or how we're interested in marriage. It's a really fascinating, I think, topic that Pope St. John Paul II dives into. You're listening to Trending with Tim Marie here on Relevant Radio. Bear Wozniak's with me today on Trending. As I mentioned, he's a world champion surfer, spent over 20 years career as a CPA, and does a lot in the Catholic world, especially on the topic of manhood. Bear, welcome to Trending. Aloha, Timmy. Good to be with you. Now, you're coming from Hawaii here, which is a joy. I'm jealous of the weather, even though I love my Southern California, but I know others, especially in the Midwest, might be pondering the Hawaiian weather. Uh, that said, I am curious to hear your thoughts. I was recently starting to read your latest book on manhood, 12 Rules for Manhood, and it really stood out to me in one of the chapters where you talked about the difference between passion and desire, and you started to lay this out in many different areas of a man's life. How do you see there is a tension between passion passion and desire for men in particular today, and what's the difference? Well, can I first say that the, the name of the book is 12 Rules for Manliness, 
uh, not manhood, but the 12 rules for manliness. And the subtitle is where have all the cowboys gone, which I, which I have to say, uh, uh, when I, when Cindy, my wife, and I, we go, we speak different places. Uh, normally, I speak a lot to men's conferences, but when we, we speak to radio galas or we speak to mixed groups, before I can get into the uh, event, we're kind of surrounded by a small, uh, you know, contingent of women, and they're basically telling us, "Tell the men we need for them to be men again. We want them to be men again." And so many men these days, you know, kind of apologize for their own existence. Uh, or feel like they need to. I was invited to speak at a men's conference in, in, in Tampa in February, and they said it's going to be called Catholic Masculinity. And I said, well, then I'm not coming because mm -hmm. the word masculine has been co-opted, you know, uh, with the twisting of, the, of words. And I just want to talk about manliness because the root word for man in Latin is ver. It's where you get the word virtue. And so in this area that you're talking about, the difference between passion and and desire, a passion is a sort of a drivenness where a desire is more of an upward yearning. The word desire means to look up at the stars. And so I challenged him, you know, I had a man introduce me once to his wife saying, this is Bear Wozniak, you know, he's, he follows his passions. He's a ninja black belt, he's run with the bulls, he's paddled his bicycle across the Molokai Channel. I mean, he's boarded across the Molokai Channel. He's, he's uh, skydives, he's a licensed pilot, he scuba dives, he's a licensed sailing captain. He's you know, so all this stuff, which is kind of the way God made me to be a little bit adventurous. And he said, this is a man that follows his passions. And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, yeah, you're that guy. And, uh, you know, you pedaled your bicycle across the United States. You have a motorcycle TV show. You're the guy that follows your passions. And I go, actually, I hope not. What I want to do is to be led by the new and right desires that God plants in my heart as I cooperate with him. You know, it's grit and grace. It's not being driven. And so many uh, of the YouTube type, uh, self-help type um, gurus out there talking to men, it's all about this driven, you know, it's all about getting fit, it's all about financial success, it's all about greed, it's all about, mm -hmm. you know, conquering women, and it's just messed up. So I challenge men uh, to become men. You know, Thomas Aquinas, his basic definition of, a, of an effeminate man is someone who seeks pleasure. And since the advent of the pill, uh, men have kind of remained boys. They can have pleasure, as John Paul II. I love the theology of the body. I'm so glad you're going through that. I've, I remember when I first returned to the Catholic Church, I read all 135 of his homilies on that. Yes. He talked about love and responsibility, mm -hmm. you know, that they must go hand in hand or it's not love at all. It's just using someone. So uh, passion I think the root word for that means to suffer. It's just being driven and it's being out of control. What we want to be is, you know, as Father Robert Spitzer writes about in his books, those upward yearnings for love, for justice, for truth, uh, for beauty, for desire to be home, uh, the virtues mm -hmm. of self-mastery, fortitude, uh, uh, prudence, justice, uh, faith, hope, and love. That's what should draw a man, compel a man, not a drivenness uh, built on passion. Hmm. And it's interesting that you share more of your background because it's incredible to hear so many of the fun and exciting and adventurous things that you've done, Bear. And I think a lot of men have this desire for adventure. I think for many uh, men today, it was stymied at times in their childhood. There was a lot of fearful parenting or um, maybe a little too much of the helicopter parenting, not letting kids, you know, to do simple things, especially boys, sometimes just allowing them to climb something or allowing them to 
wrestle things out, not beat the tar out of each other per se, but, you know, seeing that difference. Mm -hmm. And so I find a lot of men are almost nervous to try something new, to be adventurous, to take risk. And I find part of that is in the midst of this tension between chasing after what you desire and chasing your passions. You mentioned the Latin root of passion is to suffer versus desire in your book. You discuss how it's to have a longing for the stars. Can you tease out a little bit more what's problematic with that? You know, someone might say, well, that's wonderful to chase after your dreams, but those are two very different things. Passion to to suffer. Go ahead. They need to be dreams that God's put into your heart. You know, a seek ye first the king, kingdom of God, and all these things will be added onto you. And the Bible says, I will give you new and right desires. I'll plant them in you. I'll give them to you. And then I'll give them to you. I'll help you realize those, those desires as you cooperate with my grace. But, you know, the adver- the word adventure really just means things went wrong. You know, it's it's about facing adversity. And uh, But to me, I will tell you, to me, the greatest adventure a man can ever. I remember when I was in High school, I was in Texas. I had been raised in California on the beach. I moved to Texas my senior year in high school, I think it was. And I think I'd had tater tots and country fried chicken steak or whatever. I don't even know what it was. But I was in a food coma. And I remember my boring social studies teacher talking, and I drifted off. And suddenly the thought came to me that I could be a dad, that I could actually be part of bringing a human into existence that would live on into eternity. And to me... That's the great adventure. So when a man comes up to me and says, you know, I'd like to go skydiving, or there's a saying among the skydiving crowd, I'd like to go skydiving, go skydiving, but I can't because I'm dead. You know, you just kind of die young. But but the great, great, great adventure to me is uh, finding uh, someone to love, uh, to cherish, and to bring uh, human life into existence is an amazing adventure. That's the adventure as far as I'm concerned. Talk to me a little bit more about this challenge men are having, Bear. I find many men are trying to navigate career today and make concrete choices and often find themselves five years in, 10 years in, floundering in their career. What advice would you give to men today who are navigating trying to follow passions, following what is practical, Mm. and how do they make sense and take a step forward? I'm going to just say this. uh, Reading... uh, 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 an encyclical, or I guess I think it was the writings by, um, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was encyclical or, or it was, or it was the writings of our, of our last Pope. Uh, and he wrote about dignity, the dignity of work. Mm-hmm. I honestly think too many people get all caught up and saying, I want to do a job that I have passion for. I really do. There's dignity in all work for centuries. Guess what? People didn't do the work that they had a passion for. They did work and their passion was for their family to, to provide for them, to protect them and to find dignity and be in doing productive work. And it wasn't about themselves. It was about providing for the kuleana, as we say in Hawaii, the, 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 the people and the things that God has given us stewardship for. So yes, um, um, it's, it's great. Sometimes you find work that you really like and that's all good. But what you really should like is just work itself. You know, Jesus said, the Father and I, even now we work. And so to be be productive in life is to be very much like God. Men have this this desire to work. One of the problems with men is they'll get up first thing in the morning. They'll just like, they'll be ferociously ready to go to work. 
and they forget that their first work is to is to is to pray to God. You know, the word I like to pray the liturgy, the hour. The whole the word liturgy means yeah. the work of the people, and men forget that their most important work is first to seek God and to say Thy will be done to God and to meditate on God's word, and then go to work. But you know, I think people get so caught up. Someone asked me just the other day. You know, I'm doing this. This, this happened two days ago. I'm doing this work, but I'm not really sure if God is happy. If it's, I should be doing something else and be more pleasing to Him. And I just said, "Dude, you're you're, you're working. What could give God more pleasure and more uh, than in seeing you be productive, being fruitful? Um, and as, as I say in one of my chapters, uh, come hell or high water, getting the job done. There's something really uh, significant as you as you work too. You grow in virtue. You know, you grow in mm. uh, in so many of the virtues. Um, and so there's there's great dignity in work. And I would say, just forget about it. I got to find my my career more more fulfilling. I think the biggest danger is that you balance your career with your with your the rest of your life. That you make sure mm. that in your work you do what you need to do to provide for your family. But um, I'm a Benedictine Oblate. You know, I live by the rules mm. of Saint Benedict. When is enough enough? Mm-hmm. You know, to have enough to provide for your family and to, to build a wall of protection uh, for the future. But, uh, it, but chasing, chasing money is, there's an early gr- uh, church father that talked about a man walking down the street, reaching up and grabbing air and, and swallowing like it was nour- nourishment. He says he's just filling himself with more emptiness, a man who pursues empty things like that. So, so God will give us uh, direction. And, 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 and uh, you know, in, in our lives. Yeah. Are we listening? But, but, are we aware of his voice? Are we following his yeah. path to be aware of what his path would be when making major decisions yeah. such as these? I find a lot of people struggle to make major decisions about career, family, where to live. And often, you know, it's simple. And sometimes that's frightening is that we're so free to choose what we want. And yet it's simple mm. when we are living a grace-filled life. We see that freedom and we have confidence in choosing one of those options. And sure, some could be better than others. However, there's that freedom there that when you're living a virtuous life, a prayerful and sacramental life, that freedom is so prevalent and the good mm. options are available to you. Joining mm. me now is Bear Wozniak. You can find him at bearschoolofmanliness.com. That's a bear, B-E-A-R, schoolofmanliness.com. His new book, 12 Rules for Manliness, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, is available now. We're posting a link on social media as well as in the episode notes. Now, you, I think, gave really great guidance for making decisions when it came, comes to career and following your passions versus valuing just providing for your family and the work done for yourself and for your loved ones. But one of the challenges is just cultivating fun and adventure in life. I think not just men, but men and women, but men in particular are struggling with this. How should men better cultivate their need for adventure and to have fun so that they're not trying to chase it down in their career or becoming maybe embittered in marriage when you're in a season that's just hard and having young children, I'm in that season now and it's a lot. And, you know, I see how easy it could be to kind of wistfully look at all the fun perhaps other people are having who are not married or don't have children yet uh by the way thank you so much for being on your show uh a lot of my book um i write i use a quote from the great western novelist louis lamore throughout the book and you remind me of louis lamore because in his books the men are always virtuous but you know what the women are are strong like my wife strong woman full of grace and beauty wisdom but strong and in and in, in, in the 
his books, that's where he portrays them. And you, and you strike me, you strike me in that way. Um, you know, fun. Um, you know, I, I go play. People go, uh, do you work out? No, I play. You know, I go stand up, <laughs> paddle, surf. My world title, by the way, is tandem surfing. I, I lift my wife in uh, 45 different extreme lifts while, while carving on a wave. So it's something we go, we go play together. We fell in love on a tandem surfboard. You know, surfers fall more than little children, you know. So finding something um, that is physical, I think, is really important, Uh to me, playing computer games isn't playing at all. It's just rewiring the synapses in your brain and, and moving a couple fingers, you know. But getting out, and one of the things we do in Hawaii, we've learned to do, is always look to the horizon. You know, whether I'm, we're hiking on the top of a, a volcano or a diamond head or looking out at the beach in Waikiki, is to, to gain that visual perspective of looking miles and miles out. And then for me, my prayer life is every day I do, I do about 50 miles a day, walk, a, a week walking on the beach. I stand up paddle surf or tandem surf with my wife, you know, pretty much four or five times a week. Um, I like to stand up paddle surf unless it's 18 to 20 feet, then I'll prone into the waves, you know, paddle, lay down and paddle into the waves. But, but then I swim about 45 minutes a day, but I do kind of, I do a breaststroke, so my head's above water, I do about a 45-minute swim every day, and that's my real uh, contemplative time of my prayer life, where I, I seek the face of God, I pray that ancient Jesus prayer, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner, I pray uh, the rosary for those uh, that I'm called to serve, and it's just a time of me seeking God's face, so there needs to be that time, um, um, you know, of, of rest and recreation, recreation, and uh, and also work. It has to go hand in hand. Otherwise, uh, you 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 become a broken person. But fun mm. isn't sitting and watching TV, and fun isn't sitting and playing a computer game. Um, for me, anyway, fun is in motion. You know, mm. I I like to go out and play with the ocean. We we snorkel, we spearfish, we we out, we surf our outrigger canoes. You know, it's. It's get out and get physical. So I'm, I've been kind of trapped lately because for two weeks we've been traveling. And in two more days I get to get, we're going to the Virgin Islands to go to sail on our boat for a couple of months and just do some stand-up paddling and spearfishing. I just love, uh, I, but you've got to do both. you got to have uh, adventure. you got to have fun. you got to have physical fun. A man especially has to have physical fun in his life to balance off all the, all the seriousness of it. You remind me of the great book, Leisure as a Basis of Culture by Joseph Pieper. It's a good challenge of how we look at leisure and the modern culture we're in. It's very sedentary when it comes to leisure, yet mm -hmm. the type of leisure you're discussing cultivates an awareness of God, cultivates an action of fun, of fitness. So I love what you're sharing. That's, joining me now is Bear Wozniak. Again, his book is 12 Rules, Rules for Manliness. And I wanted to throw this question. When I was reading your book and just looking at some of your work, a topic that I always find annoys me a little bit is when I'll be with someone, specifically a man, and he'll almost ask the question, not asking the question, well, I'm I'm a nice guy. And he'll use it within uh. the context of usually an excuse or within the context of uh, maybe engaging in a not so um, well-behaved behavior, like a not so great behavior. And uh. every time I twitch, because every time I want to say, uh. being nice isn't enough. You want to be a good man. You want it to be an excellent man. So can you touch on the difference between being a nice guy and striving to be a good man? I tell you what, it makes me want to projectile vomit. 
<laughs> I think it makes God want Jesus want to do the same thing. You know, he's said, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're a nice guy. I will projectile vomit you out of my mouth. That's the scripture verse. Um, and it's the, 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 the difference between a nice guy and a good man is maybe a good man. By the way, good, Jesus said, that's a big word because only God is good. That's a big word. Uh, but nice is someone that never challenges anybody. It's the Homer Simpson backing up into the shrub. You know, it's it's Ned Flanders. Um, never, never, you know, I tell you what, a good man might cuss accidentally from time to time. A nice guy never would, but a good man will stand his ground. He'll he will protect his family. He a good man is actually a dangerous man. He's the kind of man that says to God and means it, thy will be done. Mm. That makes him a dangerous man. It may, it's a danger to himself to say that because it may require a great sacrifice and, and perhaps martyrdom, but it actually makes him a dangerous man. This principalities and powers of the air probably don't even know who a nice guy is, but they know when a good man gets up in the morning. There's that saying, when, when a good man gets up in the morning, the, the devil says, oh no, he's mm. up. That's what a good man is. He knows how to do battle in the spiritual, in the heavenly places. He understands what the true good is in every situation, because that is what makes a good man is a man who pursues the true good. That's Thomas Aquinas' definition of love. John Paul II said you do that through self-donation. That's what a good man does. He lays down his life for the true good, pursue the true good, and it becomes a habit with him. He first wins that battle in his mind. He avoids, he battles ferociously to focus on the good and not let pornography come into his life, not to let that, that insipid attack of that, of that, that weaselly snake, that, that, that snake in the grass, that bully, that punk Satan come into his head with, with lustful thoughts. He fights that. He resists that. When I ride my motorcycle on the highway, if there's a semi-truck passing me on my left, I never look that direction because my motorcycle will turn in and I'll die. It'll just naturally turn the direction my head looks. Oh, a man great. keeps his focus on the good, on the true good, on the true good goals that God has for him and on excellence. As Paul said, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think on these things. The catechism tells us that the battle for virtue begins in the mind. So men, the word for sin in both the Greek and the Hebrew is, the, is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So keep your yes. eyes on what you're yeah. aiming for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always love that definition of sin because it puts it into perspective. We miss the mark. And just looking at this whole topic of would you rather be a nice guy or a good man, we should be striving for excellence. Men should be striving for excellence. So I had an interesting comment come in from Lisa in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She said, being nice is being docile and doing anything you're being told to do. She said, we're supposed to be kind. A gentleman, uh, she's like, that's what we're seeking after, like being good, being gentle, being kind. And it is interesting because that docility is so prevalent today. It's like, okay, I'll just do my job, won't say anything, you know, stay, don't let anyone, you know, see you, don't stand out. And I get that. There's a time time to be that way. But there's also, I think at the end of the day, you can't benefit, you can't promote God's kingdom if you're trying to just fit in and be a yes man. And that's what's challenging in today's culture is that I think to be Christian for many people is to stand out and that's uncomfortable for them. That's Barry Wozniak here on Trending with Tim Ray. 
You can find Bear at bearschoolofmanliness.com. That's bearschoolofmanliness.com. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Number is 888-914-9149. I'll be right back here on Trending, and we're diving into our Theology of the Body series, and do we really expect more of women when we train them to abort their babies and live on birth control? What sort of conversations do we need to have with women today? So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Here's a question, maybe it's self-answerable, but do we really expect more women when we train them to abort their babies and live on birth control? This is going to be a hard story for a moment here, but there is a point in bringing it up. And at first, I want to just turn the other way and not look at it. Yet, I worked for almost six years in the pregnancy resource centers. I saw women facing teen pregnancies. The youngest woman who ever came in our doors was a young girl of 12 years old who was pregnant. I have seen the most challenging of circumstances with unplanned pregnancies and what the culture is offering to women of all ages. And so when I hear stories such as this that I'm about to share with you, and I'm not going to get into all the details because it's so barbaric, but People Magazine, that's right, just People.com, People Magazine, recently published a story that caught my attention. The headline says this, and this is exactly what it is. Nebraska teen, 16 years old, accused of cutting her newborn baby's throat after the father finds baby in bag. I saw this. I read the story. And here's here there are a lot of takes on this whole conversation. At first, I thought this is going to be a pro-abortion, anti-pro-life movement piece. But this article on People Magazine literally just reports all of the facts. Good on dad. He tried to provide to do CPR, tried to save the baby. Her own mother, the mother, which would be the grandmother of the baby, also contacted the authorities. They were very truthful right away about what this young woman has done. Now, I don't know all of the details as to why and what happened. You and I could hazard a lot of guesses with everything from postpartum depression to a pro-abortion movement to something might have happened with the father of the baby, the overwhelm of being a ting mom. There are many factors that could be at play here. But here's what's interesting to me. This story is so horrific and so barbaric. I don't want to read it. I don't even want to talk about it. But here's the question. Do we really expect more women and teenage girls? They've been indoctrinated to murder their babies via abortion and prevent pregnancy at all costs from the ripe, young, prepubescent age. Education prior to the age of puberty is already very vulgar in the public school systems, as if the meaning of one's autonomy, freedom, and fun centers around sexual exploitation with the only boundary, the only sense of morality for girls is consent. That's all. They are strictly sexual objects. Is there any surprise that girls are identifying as transgender today? Do we really find it that surprising that a young teenage girl has literally physically killed 
her baby who's outside of the womb. Now, People Magazine reports on the story, calls the baby a baby for what the baby is. But if this baby were 38 weeks gestation, it would be a different story. But here People Magazine is reporting a horrific barbaric story with no commentary, just the facts, because it's so shocking. And sometimes when we share news, on rare occasion today still, we just have the facts. Most of the time, there's a spin. And I was expecting there to be some sort of spin on this article from People Magazine to try and push, well, this is why they need abortion. And for context, the law in Nebraska is that abortion is legal up to the 12th week of pregnancy. And... So most women are able to access the abortion they want because usually women are going to have an abortion earlier on in the pregnancy. Not all, but a lot of women are still getting access to the abortion they need. So this wasn't necessarily a huge push for abortion access. What this was was a shocking story that was shared online about a woman, a young woman, a 16-year-old girl. Of course, a little girl, a teenager who's 16, is going to murder her baby after birth if she's really struggling because the culture says it's okay. Now, you may say there's a radical difference between an abortion and a young mom killing her baby. At the end of the day, both situations, a mother's kill participating in the death of her child. One happens within the sterile environment of a so-called medical facility, and the other, in this instance, happens at home. And again, I'm avoiding sharing all the details so because they're horrific. They're absolutely horrific. But I think it's really confusing for young girls and any age mother today to decipher the difference when their conscience says no to abortion, but the world drums on, yes, yes, yes. Don't tell me otherwise. Don't tell me what to do with my body. I need abortion to get ahead. I need abortion in order to live my life. I need abortion to plan my family when I want. I need abortion to have a career. I need an abortion to have an education. I need an abortion so that when I actually do get married, my babies are just with the man I married because I'm used to sexual, quote unquote, freedom. Of course, a woman is miserable when she has a baby at 16 and the world has told her not to. And that noise is there. Because she went against a poorly formed conscience that says, don't have a baby at 16. Although deep down inside, her conscience is saying, never kill your baby. How could anything like that happen? This is why a woman at the end of the day, no matter the context, whether it was abortion or after having a baby and something happens, such as this young 16-year-old girl who killed her own baby, she knows she's a mother and she's now a mother of a dead baby and she will face that for the rest of her life. And this is what our culture has done to her. This is what our culture has handed this young teenage girl. If this young woman was suffering from postpartum depression, which is very common, the culture is not helping her by saying, kill your own child via abortion. What's the difference? Some people actually get that the only difference between abortion and what is actually classified as murder, both are, is that a baby's inside the womb versus outside of the womb. Get in line. There are states, including Illinois, California, Michigan, Vermont, now Ohio, with the latest vote on issue one last week, where through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy, and this has been the law of the land for, for decades here in California, you can kill a baby for any reason. For any reason. During a pregnancy, and even with the new laws, it's questionable that, in fact, you could even kill a baby 
after the baby was born. And whether you're the physician, the person who helped kill the baby, the mom, that you wouldn't be held liable. Now, what happens when women don't have access to abortion? What happens when, as a culture, we say women deserve better than abortion? Women need more than contraception. They need the truth about their bodies, the gift and value of sexual complementarity, the joy of married life in babies within the context of marriage. Children are challenging enough as is. Why on earth would we be encouraging any, any sort of context where children would come outside of the loving commitment of a husband and wife to mutually support one another and raise a child? When women don't have access to abortion, and there's actually a pro-abortion study that's still going on that the results were actually shared a couple years ago. It's called the Turnaround Study. And for 10 years, they followed women who in various states, especially near Central America, where abortion access was less than other places, women were turned away from getting access to abortion, whether it was because an abortion clinic in their area just didn't perform abortions that late when the woman wanted one, or maybe there was a state law that prevented abortion at that point in gestation. And so these women had to have their babies. And so the story was called, the study was called the Turnaway Study, and its goal was to propose how miserable and terrible these women are. But the fact of the matter was is that the further away from an attempted abortion the woman got, the happier she was with the fact that she had to keep her baby. So when women don't have access to abortion, they have to step forward and mother their children. When women don't have access to abortion, we start after over 50 years of a pro-abortion culture, we start to change the hearts and minds of people to make different choices with regard to motherhood, with regard to sexuality. And so this brings me to, I think, an important opportunity. This can be a conversation piece to talk to women. And if you're a parent to your teenagers or maybe college age daughters about this story, it's up to you if you want to get into some of the details. I'm sharing it in the episode notes, or you could just stick with the basic facts. A 16 year old girl literally killed her baby, literally killed her baby. Here are my questions that I challenge you to think about. Why do you think she killed her baby? There are a lot of answers. But at the end of the day, whether it be postpartum depression, a pro-abortion culture, a teen pregnancy, all of it comes back to a radical culture that says sexual freedom, use contraception, and use abortion. And so at the end of the day, if you talk to any young woman or girl today, she's going to say that part of the mindset is, at all costs, don't have a baby. Because that's what gets in the way. That's the problem. That's how you solve your misery, your discomfort. Another question to ask is, what message does the culture say to women about babies? So the first is, why do you think she killed her baby? The second was, what message does the culture say to women about babies? This is what I'll say. Babies are bad unless they're in the most perfect and idealistic of circumstances. And 100% on your terms. When does life work that way? We have a whole generation, more than one generation, of women saying that they want babies and they can't have them because their biological clock was ticking. They never settled down. They spent too many years on hormonal birth control. Or the fact of the matter is, 
infertility is increasing, whether you want to attribute it to plastics, to drugs, to food. There's a lot to be said. Fertility is on the rise. The longer we wait to have children, the longer it takes to try and fix the mess that occurs of how fertility can be messy for some of us, myself included. Having kids was hard, not easy. I struggled with two autoimmune disorders impacting fertility, made for two challenging pregnancies. Another question to ask young women and teenagers today is, how would you feel if you faced a teen pregnancy? What would be your choice? What would be the pressure of the culture? How do you think that young woman felt? Another question is, what do you think young girls or women need to hear so that they don't feel like they have to choose abortion, choose, be on contraception, or in this case, be so miserable as a teenage mother that they feel they have to kill their own children. We need to be able to have some of these uncomfortable conversations about so-called reproductive health and sexual choices that it seems as if you're not allowed to tell me what to do and I'm not allowed to tell you what to do, and it's almost a taboo subject, yet Millions of women across this nation are suffering from having been through an abortion. Millions upon millions of women are suffering from having been for years on hormonal birth control and the damage that's done to their bodies, whether knowingly or unknowingly. A lot of women just suffer and make do because they think that's what they have to do. So these are difficult conversations. This is a really difficult story. But I actually appreciate that People Magazine published it because it should inspire the opportunity to have conversations about the reality of the place that young women from teenagers on are in and how challenging it is to constantly be told fertility is a bad thing, yet fertility is the one thing at the end of life, in the middle of life, that women are spending thousands upon thousands of dollars on to have a baby at all costs. And so I think it's important that we start having more factual and honest and loving conversations about babies, inspiring and encouraging young women to embrace that maternal instinct, to be excited about having children, to, yes, have real conversations about choices they'll make in terms of career. I was offered in my early 20s a number of really interesting and exciting opportunities for work and in ministry to live in different places of the world. And I said no, whether it was declining what could be a good salary, what could be have be a job of great influence, because I knew at the end of the day I wanted to be a mom. I also was truly trying to step in a direction that could also allow me now to serve God in his kingdom, stay near my family, and also at the same time position myself in a place that could be more open to life be more detached from the culture of the world, the draw of career, so that I could be first and foremost a mom when that time came. These are choices we have to make. A lot of women and mothers' heartstrings are being pulled in the wrong directions because we've fostered an anti-mother culture. So I encourage you to have these difficult conversations and to enter into this. And we don't have to have all the answers, but I think girls deserve better that in their teenage years, in their college years, in those early years of choosing careers, that they're making decisions and being mentored and conversing with people who have a pro-marriage and pro-motherhood mindset 
to help make the ease into motherhood and the desire for motherhood and the battle over fertility possible, doable, and joyful, even in the midst of the challenges that it poses. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I'll be right back diving into the sacrament of matrimony with Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Married or not, there's a lot of keen insights for what we are called to and how we are meant to live out our lives. talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Our toll-free line is 888-914-9149 and it's sponsored by Catholic Orders of Foresters Life Insurance. What I do want to look at today is our Theology of the Body series. We're in the thick of it. We're walking our way through the sacrament of matrimony, looking at Ephesians chapter 5. We're right at the 93rd talk. We're making our way toward the end. And marriage is the topic. This analogy right now in Ephesians chapter 5, where we read a lot about the roles of husbands and wives in marriage, as we've been discussing the last couple of weeks. Now we turn our gaze to Ephesians 5, where it points to the mystery of marriage and that we see this analogy that St. Paul gives of the analogy of how husbands and wives are meant to focus in marriage and how the ultimate example is of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Pope St. John Paul II says, in God's salvific plan, marriage is the most ancient revelation. That is, he reveals the example of Christ's love for us and his giving himself for us. So we see in marriage this example that in Ephesians 5 represents the role of husband and wives in that of the example of Christ the church. Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice that he makes, that is bloody, bruised, and beaten, shows us his fidelity and love for the church and his sacrifice. And we see the church's ultimate fidelity and obedience in return. That's what we're called to as members of the church. That's why the teaching of the church cannot change from God's divine revelation. This is why even when we may face challenging moments in the church and flawed explanations of what the church teaches, we can always go back to what do the documents teach? What does the church continue to say century after century when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ and how to live our lives? And so what we're looking at is marriage today in the theology of the body. The sacraments, when we look at sacraments, there are seven sacraments, they're are two ways to express the sacraments. And I've really grown to appreciate the second way, especially with my husband being a Maronite Catholic, a Lebanese Catholic, because they're different lungs of the church. There's the Eastern and the Western. We're more familiar with the Western church, the Roman rite of the Catholic church. But you also have, for example, the Chaldean rite, the Lebanese rite. And I could go through all these different rites of the church. Yet in the Eastern lung of the church, with many of these other rites that aren't the Roman rite, but are in line with the Holy Father, What we see is the sacrament is often referred to as the mystery because the sacrament has two elements. The the sacrament representing the sign, 
So we see the sign, for example, of marriage of the husband and wife. We see the sign, for example, in the Eucharist of the bread and wine. But the mystery, for example, in the Eucharist is that that's trans, the transubstantiation, the transformation occurs, and that's actually the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the sacrament of matrimony, the mystery is the grace that's infused into that marriage and the sacrifice that's necessary for that marriage to bear fruit and to grow and to be a vocation in the direction of heaven. And so what happens here is St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is giving this great mysterious example of the roles of husband and wife and pointing to the perfect example in the analogy of Christ in the church. And St. Paul actually talks about how this is a great mystery, not the challenges of marriage and the roles that we're called to as Catholics, but the great mystery of how Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for the church and the church remains faithful. Pope St. John Paul II in his 93rd catechetical talk says, the sacrament is a visible and efficacious sign of grace, a means for accomplishing in man the mystery hidden from eternity in God. He goes on to say, above all, Christ himself is a gift. He gives himself to the church as to his bride. And using this marital imagery, Pope St. John Paul II points to this analogy, not just of Christ and the church, but how all of salvation history, if we look back to the Old Testament, the Bible is peppered everywhere with this love story of God as the husband and the chosen people, Israel, as the bride. We see this in particular in wisdom literature, such as the Psalms, all the way to Song of Solomon. We see this in the example, especially of the prophets, such as Isaiah. And one such example that Pope St. John Paul II gives is in Isaiah chapter 54, one of the major prophets where Isaiah says, For your creator is your husband. Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah goes on to say, With immense love I will take you again. My steadfast infection, affection shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not waver, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Here we see the example of God the Creator referred to as husband and Lord and Redeemer. This is a glimpse of the mystery of who Jesus Christ will be. He will be our Redeemer. We see the analogy St. Paul refers to of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. We see this steadfast, unwavering love of God the Father through all of, all of salvation history that he's willing to give his Son as the Redeemer of the world, as the Redeemer of our souls. The spousal imagery reveals, Pope St. John Paul II says, the mystery hidden in the very heart of God. So we hear reference often in biblical theology and theology about the sacraments, about the primordial sacrament, the sacrament from the dawn of creation, and how at the dawn of creation, we see the sacrament of marriage, and how God from the dawn of creation had in marriage this mystery hidden of the great and perfect love of God for us, and how this is that perfect example that we have as a challenge or, and I say that in a positive way, a call, a challenge to live up to the great mystery of the sacrament of matrimony. 
God is the creator explicitly calling us to fulfill the roles as husband and as wife in marriage. This is part of the reason why it's a travesty to try and claim that there's any other type of marriage other than man-woman marriage. From the dawn of creation, literal physical complementarity between husband and wife that can lead to procreation having children is part of the basis, not just on the physical level, but on the spiritual level, on the moral level, the way husband and wife complement one another in marriage. And the prophet Isaiah helps us to better understand the great mystery of the sacrament of matrimony as participating in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Christ is our model in marriage. This is why husbands have this profound role to literally lay down their lives for their bride to set aside their own disordered desires, to set aside their own lofty and worthy and good desires for the betterment of their spouse, for the eternal soul of their spouse, and for the souls of their children. And likewise, wives are supposed to choose husbands that have this eternal perspective in mind so that they can fall into the mission of that sacrificial role that the husband has. That's why wives are called to be submissive. Submission means to be under the same mission to the husband because they're jointly functioning in different ways as man and woman to the same goal. So the examples of the significance of Jesus as that model in marriage is extremely profound, especially when you see For example, Pope St. John Paul II refers to the example of Jesus as a total example when it comes to the analogy of spousal love, where he actually also says a radical example. Jesus Christ shows the call of the gift of self. The mystery of grace is made manifest, as Pope St. John Paul II says over and over again in the sacrament of matrimony when we look at it exampled in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial love for the church and the redemptive role that he plays. We see the sign of matrimony where we just see husband and wife and family. We see the grace that is meant to exude and pour forth into the marriage and the fruit that's meant to be born from that marital relationship. It's inspiring. It's challenging. But praise God, we see this example as all drawing from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to make it possible. This is our Theology of the Body series. I hope you're joining us here on Trending. You can catch all the series. We've been added a couple months now coming right around to the end here in a week or so. So please join me in our series. Check out relevantradio.com and head over to the Trending Podcast and you can listen to all of our Theology of the Body series. Coming up next is a family rosary across America. I'll talk to you tomorrow.